Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 98 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 98, Scott and I are going to be talking through a series of logical fallacies, uh, sort of the classical uh, logical fallacies you might uh, study in either a formal logic class or in a debate or or uh, what's it called rhetoric class uh, or something along those lines and we're going to be tying them into sort of the quizzing universe so we'll we'll talk about and we're not going to go through every you know logical fallacy or even a majority of them we're just highlighting a sort of a handful of the more common ones we'll I'll, I'll identify what they are we'll talk a little bit about what they are scott will have some examples both generic and quizzing examples for each one of these things we'll talk kind of what these things are and where the boundaries of them are and the whole goal of this is to kind of set the stage really for future conversations around critical thinking around quizzing both where we are right now where we're going to be in the future and how to get there and so forth and we want to encourage this idea of critical thinking so this may seem a little bit kind of basic but i think this is really foundational to a lot of stuff that we're going to be talking about uh, in future episodes all right so the first thing i want to kind of throw out there is actually not at all a logical uh fallacy or an argumentation fallacy, but I think it's at the root of where some of the failures in reasoning come from. And I don't mean in quizzing, I think in general, you know, just being humans, humans, you know, we're, we're intelligent, we're creative, but we're also highly illogical from time to time. And I think where we are illogical is in our failure to think clearly or get very clear about the difference between two kinds of reasoning. The first is deductive and the second is inductive. So like the difference between inductive versus deductive uh, reasoning. And there's really kind of, I guess, two axes, and this is an oversimplification here. So anybody who's taken formal logic classes, don't throw anything at me just yet. But essentially they, they differ in sort of two axes, right? One is how they differ in their aims and the other is how they differ in their conclusions. So starting with the aims first, deductive reasoning aims at testing a theory uh, and inductive reasoning aims at developing a theory. So the idea of an in inductive reasoning, you could think of it as you're never really going to get to an X equals one sort of situation. You're gathering data that sort of all points to the idea that X might equal one, right? Uh, and then deductive reasoning is the inverse of that, where you where you basically are using uh, core logic to get down to something very, very specific, where you're able to, you know, in the realm of science, you're able to, say, disprove a hypothesis using deductive reasoning, not so much, although in some cases you can use inductive as well, but generally you're testing a theory trying to disprove a hypothesis using deductive reasoning and developing the idea of the theory with inductive uh, reasoning. Uh, and lots of hand waving. This is not exactly super kosher. But anyway, the second is in the how the conclusions differ between these two. A deductive argument, um, assuming that the posits are all true for the argument and there's no fallacies in the deductive argument, and those fallacies, some of them we're going to be talking about in a little bit, a deductive argument that has correct posits and is uh, no fallacies within the argument is objectively true. 
right? It's an objectively proved uh, by by being a deductive argument that is has no fa fallacies and the po uh, posits are true. An inductive argument, uh, by contrast, subjectively suggests what is probably true, uh, even if the inductive argument is completely flaw flawless and what I would call, say, rich in the sense of like how much input it has, right? So an inductive argument becomes more rich the more input you have. It becomes more trustworthy the more input you have. The richer it is, the more trustworthy the inductive argument is, but it never gets to absolute you know, objective truth, it gets closer and closer to probably true, right? And then we end up deciding, well, where's that threshold in terms of good enough true that we accept it as, as true, that sort of stuff, right? So most logical fallacies involve a failure to understand, I think, the difference between these two categories of reasoning. And most logical fallacies exist as a way, I think, for people to skip over the critical thinking work, to basically go A, B, Z, right? And skip over a lot of the steps to sort of get to a conclusion uh, more quickly. And we, and, you know, you'd think, well, maybe that's a flaw in humanity, how we think, but actually that's a, that's, that's a feature, not a bug. Like, can you imagine having to like think through every single logical step of everything that you'd ever do every day? You wouldn't get anything done. You'd just be paralyzed in, in constantly going through all of this sort of mental processing. Uh, you'd go into overload. Um, being able to skip, you know, A, B, Z is useful because it lets us actually accomplish things. And most of the time, we're not so wrong that it matters um, in the grander scheme of things. But it's important that we recognize the fact that this is what's happening. We're skipping over critical thinking work in, in order to obtain certain amounts of efficiency uh, for a certain amount of, of error rate, right? Um, but when we're talking about logical fallacies, these are what allow us essentially oftentimes to skip over some work in a flawed sort of way. All right. So let's um, actually, before we jump into the first one, um, Scott, do you have anything to add on that or any anything sort of in the, the bigger picture stuff? So do you think our brains are are like kind of evolutionary, evolutionarily geared to skip over things? Because in most of our reasonings and decisions in the course of a day, that's fine. Um, but that propensity might lead us to skip things in a more it in a reasoning that requires you not skip the steps. I don't know if it's evolutionary. I mean, you could say evolutionary or you could say God created in a particular way. I think it's a certain amount of efficiency, right? So our brains operate at a particular I don't know, to, to, to turn our brain into a computer, right? To pretend that our, our brain is a CPU. It operates at a certain clock speed, right? And if we were not going to skip over critical thinking steps, we wouldn't be able to get much done. In fact, we'd probably get very, very, very little done, right? Um, and so we, we essentially have to skip over critical thinking steps for, for us to, survive. I mean, uh, even at a, at a very, very basic level, right? And of course, as humanity, as civilization becomes ever more civilized, ever more advanced and complicated, we need ever greater levels of skipping over critical thinking and jumping to conclusions to be able to survive in this ever complex universe that we that we find ourselves in, right? Does Am, am I answering right. your question or am I kind of going off on a tangent here? I think so. I mean, it, I think it makes sense why for the vast amount of reasoning that a human does in a day, 
we don't stop and say like, am I doing deductive or am I doing inductive and what steps have I missed and what assumptions, because as you say, that's inefficient and you just couldn't function. And so then we arrive at the very tough distinction of how do I know when I shouldn't be skipping steps and when I should be. Right. <laughs> that, and that's vi- and that's an extraordinarily good point. It's extremely difficult, right? It's sort of the idea of like identifying cognitive bias in oneself, right? So it's fairly easy. Uh, and I, I'm fairly is a very vague term, but it's relatively easy to identify cognitive biases in other people if you study what cognitive biases are and you're, you're you train yourself on looking for it and trying to identify it. It's fairly easy for you to see it in other people. It is extremely difficult, perhaps impossible, to identify a cognitive bias in yourself, right? It 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 almost takes actually it doesn't almost. I believe it takes external stimuli for someone to become aware, self-aware of a cognitive bias internally, right? And like you can study it all you want, you can read up on all kinds of what, you know, what these biases are, but if you're afflicted by one of the biases and of course, and it's not really an if, we're all afflicted with various different biases all day long, being able to identify that requires somebody giving you that feedback or some kind of feedback external to you because your cognitive bias is is quite literally the filter through which you're seeing the external world so it's it's extremely difficult to kind of wrap that around philosophically and point back at yourself and go oh i'm noticing that there's a filter here right right and i mean it's i mean we've all written papers for school and edited it and proofread it and it was perfect and then had someone else read it and they showed us very obvious typos, but you're just so blind to it yourself, right? <laughs> yeah, in in a sense, but even but even in that example, right? If I write a if I write a paper, I ought to now. Of course, you know the fact that I have written the paper makes me not the best editor of that paper, right? In terms of spotting errors, but it is theoretically possible that I'm if I'm working through the paper over and over again and analyzing it very quick, not quickly, very carefully. I'll be able to get to 100% awareness of any problems that are in the paper. A cognitive bias is quite literally the filter through which you see the world, right? And through which you you experience the world. And so in in effect, there isn't any way to match how you're viewing the world with anything else, right? So if if I'm reviewing a paper that I've written um, and and I'm trying to be very, very careful about it, there is at least a, an above zero probability I will catch every error because I'm taking the input of that paper and critically analyzing it as as input, right? But a bias is almost like a contact lens over my perceptions of what that paper is. And so I can't ever know what the truth is without somebody being aware, well, somebody telling me, oh, by the way, you have this contact on your eye. Does that make sense? Right. And so um, I recently read what I think to be a very compelling argument for um, the positives of diversity of thought is that one person can easily make an incorrect decision or analysis about something. But as you include um, differing viewpoints, um, very quickly you eliminate those possibilities, right? And that's kind of you know, one way you're talking about getting at, like, what are the fallacies, the logical fallacies that I have that I am blind to is even just having one other person talk through them. Um, it gets harder and harder f- 
for a true fallacy to persist. That's yeah, that's very true. And I mean, as long as you truly have true diversity of thought, and it's very easy for us to be, you know, blindsided into thinking that we have that in a collection of people when we really don't. But as long as you have, you know, a a a true or very nearly true, uh, you know, diversity of thought, it your your comment about it being very quick is very true, right? Like it really doesn't does not take a ton of people, like two, three, four. I mean, that's enough. I mean, it, you, you don't need to have, you know, a hundred people to create sort of this, uh, you know, a, a free market or not free market, um, efficient market hypothesis, right? Uh, you know, and if you can't, you can't have an efficient market with like, say three or four people, you need like a few hundred people, uh, but you can actually become at least cognitively aware of biases in a group of say two or three or four, uh, it, it doesn't take a ton. And so, you know, like, like bring swinging this all the way back around to quizzing, right? One of the things that, uh, in PNW we love to do is have multiple question set editors for the official PNW question set. Uh, not because we think any one of our question editors isn't particularly good. Actually, we have some great uh, question editors. They're all really great. And I would trust any one of them to write and edit a set solo. But by putting this group, a fairly small group, but by putting this group together and ha having them collaborate over the editing process, it makes the set like orders of magnitude uh, better. Right. And to put a couple examples on deductive and inductive reasoning, since you define them in a pretty academic manner, Deductive reasoning where you're starting from a theory and trying to prove it, like statistical hypothesis, I guess this is a very academic thing, but statistical hypothesis testing would be an example, right? Where you're saying, um, this is my hypothesis and I'm trying to see if my data is strong enough to disprove it. Um, well, okay, yeah, that, so it depends on the arrow of causality and it's not really causality. It depends on the the, the arrow of proof like I, I, hypothesis and proof or disproof, right? Uh, w uh, between whether it's deductive or inductive. Um, so st you can use statistics in either deductive or inductive, right? Um, you can use statistics to formulate patterns and from there come use inductive reasoning to come up with a theory. You can, you know, start with a theory, uh, and make deductive, uh, predictions with the theory and then use statistics to disprove those predictions, therefore disproving the, duct, uh, the, the, the theory that you started with. Sure. And then a classic example of inductive reasoning would be Sherlock Holmes, right? Yeah, deductive and inductive. Um, he liked to flip back and forth uh, between the two, but I think um, uh, Conan Doyle tended to prefer inductive. Right, because he would use observational clues like this person's jacket was wet and their clock was, their watch was set to this time. And, um, these are the routes that the cabs were driving at this time of the, the day or whatever, and then would develop a theory from that most commonly. Right. Right. But then he would also use deductive to basically eliminate. So essentially inductive lets you zero in on a, on a target and deductive lets you cut away part parts or the whole of that target. Right. But I still think, the idea of gathering clues um, 
is an example of inductive reasoning. And there's almost no amount of clues that could definitively like prove something, <laughs> you know, right. which is right. kind of what you were saying. Like usually when cases get proved with beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's still a more human defined beyond the shadow of a doubt, or there was a human confession or something else beyond the inductive reasoning based on clues. Right. Right. Indeed. All right. I'm done. All right, cool. Well, let's uh, jump into the first one. So, and again, like I was saying, we're not really going to go through, well, we can't go through every, there's there's gobs and gobs of logical fallacies. We're not even going to go through, we're not even going to go through a lot of the major ones. We're just going to go through a handful of the sort of the most common ones that, that we see, um, you know, both inside and outside of quizzing, mostly outside of quizzing for the most part. All right, so the first one is appeal to authority and it's uh the latin is argumentum ad vera i can never say this correctly uh vir vacundium and of course if you know latin please don't throw anything at me because i'm i'm sure i'm butchering that terribly but the latin literally translated means argument from respect but we tend to refer to that as an appeal to authority so an appeal to an authority logical fallacy is any argument that considers the source of the position, the source of the argument, right? Uh, instead of the argument or the position itself, right? So the idea being that you're using the source of a position uh, to skip over having to review the evidence data or the actual argument itself, right? So if, you know, somebody who is, uh, recognizes being very smart, uh, has a lot of credentials, a lot of, uh, what do they call it? Alphabet soup after their name. Uh, they make a particular statement, uh, appeal to authority is, well, that person who has these credentials made that statement and therefore it must be true. And it's like, well, inductively, the fact that they have credentials encourages you to think that they're probably more true than somebody who doesn't have those credentials. But again, that's an inductive sort of, you know, probabilistic sort of thing. It is definitely not a deductive, uh, yeah, you definitely can trust what they're saying and they're, they're, they're never incorrect because of their credentials, right? That's a, a, a deductive logical fallacy. That's the uh, appeal to authority. Right. So a generic example would be, um, so Griffin thinks that Star Wars is better than Star Trek. Um, and I say, well, Griffin has a PhD, therefore Star Wars is better than Star Trek. Well, again, you were saying probabilistically, like if I was a betting person, um, and all I know is that Griffin has a PhD, well, I might be more inclined to say that Griffin is right or bet that way than the opposite. But specifically related to this argument, the fact that Griffin has a PhD is pretty irrelevant. Um, and attributing the statement Star Wars is better than Star Trek as correct solely because we know that Griffin has a PhD would be an example of an appeal to an authority. Yeah, exactly. And another one is Scott doesn't think Dunkin' Donuts coffee is a blight on civilization. Uh, Scott was an international Bible quizzer and is an excellent quiz master. Therefore, Dunkin' Donuts coffee isn't a blight on civilization. Now, we all know that Scott is objectively wrong, but this is a flawed argument nonetheless. And this is an example of an argument where the conclusion is true, but how we get to that conclusion deductively is still flawed. Right. So it's, I mean, I don't think this is what people are thinking, but it could be more efficient to just say like, oh, um, because of these reasons, I'm just going to believe this person is true, which if you got to, if you had to make 5 million of these decisions a day, 
that's probably the best way to go about it. <laughs> but um, absent needing that sort of efficiency, the fact that Griffin's a PhD or I'm an excellent quiz master is pretty irrelevant to those the correctness of the statements that we make, right? Right. And I mean, and here's the other thing. These two examples are, you know, what does me having a PhD have anything whatsoever to do with Star Wars versus Star Trek? My PhD was in, you know, uh, information technology. It was not in uh, science fiction cinema. So, you know, my PhD quite literally has nothing whatsoever to do with Star Wars or Star Trek, right? So let's say instead, well, Griffin went to film school and he has watched Star Wars 117 times. Actually, it's probably more than that. He's watched Star Trek some number of times greater than one, I suppose, um, some some number of times. Definitely not as much as, as Star Wars. Therefore, I am an expert on both Star Wars and Star Trek. But again, who cares, right? I Even though Griffin is an expert on Star Wars and Star Trek, uh, that credential is more relevant than my PhD credential, but it's still irrelevant in terms of deductive logic, right? It, in, it increases... The probability, switching the credential from the PhD to say, I've watched Star, uh, Star Wars 170 times or 117,000 times, uh, switches the level of credibility in terms of inductive logic, but in terms of deductive logic, it, 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 it's utterly irrelevant. We're still at zero. Yep. Um, so for a quizzing example, um, say blank person thinks we should add a rule to allow quotes and finishes to not be word perfect. Um, for articles and ah, I see for articles only. And then the reasoning is blank was an international quizzer and has been a well-respected quizzing leader for many years. Therefore we should add the new rule. Well, if we were forced to like decide whether or not to add this rule based on just the, the information that we have, we might be forced one way or the other, but we're not forced, right? We can gather a lot more information specifically the reason for changing a rule and whether or not we think those are good reasons. Right. Exactly. You know, the, the, I, I don't think anybody is advocating that we not require articles to be word perfect in quote in quotes and finishes, but let's say there was somebody who was an international quizzer who was very well respected in quiz, quizzing leadership for years and they made the proposal. Yeah, we should drop articles in ter uh, for word perfectness. Uh, the fact that they are an international quizzer, former international quizzer, and a well-respected, you know, quizzing leader for years is not relevant, right? In terms of deductive logic. Yep. All right. So let's move on. The next one, very famous one. Everybody probably has heard of this one. Uh, this and that is the ad hominem attack. It is uh, Latin for against the man or uh, just translated loosely, attacking the person. So an ad hominem attack is any argument that considers the source of the counterposition instead of the counterposition itself. So again, related to appeal to authority, it's almost like the inverse of appeal to authority in, in a way, right? You're, you're attacking the person who is presenting the argument, not the argument itself, or you're associating the argument with somebody who is bad, right? Uh, or, or who has a history of being wrong. Right. Um, yeah. You said you talked about like you're a bad person or your position is also held, held by a bad person, which is why every now and then um, I'll hear about a rules proposal um, 
and I'm like, I think this is a terrible proposal. But what I like is most often when I'm told about the proposal, it's just told to me as the proposal. It's told to me secondhand, and the person who proposed it is not told to me, which is kind of ideal for me because then I I am not influenced for or against the proposal because of the person at all. I just get to say like, oh, I think this is a terrible idea and here's why, or you know what, this is kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. It is extremely helpful um, because again, like, and, and you're self-aware of your, your bias, right? That, that comes into play there. And, you know, I have that exact same bias as well, right? If it's some, somebody proposing something that I have a lot of respect for, and I've, I've known them for a while, and I've, they've, they've had other ideas that, that I agree with, and then they come up with something else, um, I might be sort of inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt or give them a little bit more grace in convincing me of their position than I, than I would somebody who had a history of coming up with kind of crazy ideas. Now that's not a good idea, right? Ultimately I should be judging or evaluating the idea based on the idea itself. It is irrelevant who came up with the idea. And so like, you know, when we're talking about say amendments to the rule book or potential, potential changes to quizzing or something, I vastly prefer a system where we are able to capture the argument, the theory, the idea, the change idea or whatever in a way that sort of de-authors it. De-authors, that's not the right word, but it removes any connection to who came up with the idea, right? Um, so in Robert's Rules of Order, it, when somebody makes a motion, and of course, a lot of organizations don't say they follow Roberts, but they don't actually follow Roberts. But in, in true Roberts rules of order fashion, if somebody raises a motion and it's seconded, that motion is now owned quote unquote by the, either the board or the uh, congregation or the assembly or whatever it is, the, the voting members who are present, the person who made the motion no longer has any special connection to that motion, right? So like you, you'll see this in, a, in a, oftentimes in board meetings, or at least I see this a lot of times in board meetings, somebody will make a motion, somebody will second it, there'll be some discussion, and then somebody will have an idea to amend the motion and they will ask the person who made the motion if they're okay with that amendment. And I'm like, no, 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 the, the, this motion is not theirs anymore. It was seconded. It's now part of the group. Whoever came up with the motion is it's, it's not relevant anymore. We're, we're debating the contents of the, of the proposal, not the person who came up with them. Yeah. I don't know if I have a lot to add to that. Some quizzing examples here would be you weren't international Bible quizzer. So I'm going to ignore your opinion. Um, or your rookie quizzer or coach, so I'm going to ignore your opinion. Um, that would be, I mean, and I think you designed it this way, but it's kind of the exact opposite is appeal to authority, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's 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 sort of it's the the inverted side of things. Now, here's the thing: nobody in quizzing, as far as I'm aware, is ever going to be so super blunt um, and super rude or callous as to say something like, "Well, you didn't you didn't." attend internationals as a quizzer. So I'm going to ignore your opinion or I'm going to devalue your devalue your opinion. Nobody is going to say, well, you're a rookie coach or, you know, this is your first year as a quizzer. So your opinion doesn't matter. No one is going to say that. I don't even think anybody is going to think that like consciously, right? It's really more, there's some, oftentimes a, I would I don't want, I wouldn't call it subconscious, but there is a, 
nagging bias that exists. Uh, and sometimes we can be blind to our bias. That's, you know, somebody who's been around quizzing for a long time tends to, you know, have a little bit more opportunity to uh, raise ideas and have those ideas be critically uh, considered rather than, you know, somebody who's, who's brand new. Now, granted, somebody who's brand new, usually their ideas are a little bit more random, usually not tempered with the wisdom that comes from, you know, years involved in the program. But nevertheless, you know, I think it's a logical fallacy to discount uh, even partially opinions uh, based on their source. I think you're probably right that people wouldn't be that blunt, but I'm not sure that they would only subconsciously have these feelings. I think in general, people when if people in quizzing don't like you or disagree with you, they will be fairly passively petty, but I think that they are pretty aware of it. And I, you know, I've definitely been the um, recipient of ad hominem attacks because I was younger than most of the other leaders in quizzing. Um, and it, it was not like spoken, but it was also not hidden. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, that can certainly be there and they're probably not thinking consciously. And I should, I should be very clear about the word conscious. I don't mean that something is happening beyond their mental awareness. Well, I guess I am slightly. It's not that that's the, the forerunning thought in their head of Scott is young, therefore he is wrong, right? It's rather more, uh, it's all it, it's it's coming to a conclusion based on feelings first and then backing into the logic to justify the where you got to with your feelings first right so like i feel uh, uncomfortable or i don't feel good about myself because scott is younger and he's in a position of authority over me um i therefore am generally antagonistic to change ideas that scott has uh, well, why am I antagonistic to this particular idea that Scott has? Well, it must be because there's something wrong in the idea. So I'm going to more critically try to find reasons to disagree with this idea, right? And it kind of backs into the logic from the feeling side of things. Right. And I think that's almost exactly the order that it went, right? It was, um, I realize that I can't win um, solely on my idea, <laughs> Um, versus Scott's idea or challenge or protest. And so I have to result to something else to win. <laughs> Otherwise, I have to admit to myself that I can't win on the basis of my idea. Right, right, indeed. And, yeah, and, it, and that it, often happens in the space of a split second and subconsciously because we don't like feeling wrong. Yeah, and I don't... And I, I saying subconscious is okay in the sense of like, well, it's not... It's not conscious in the sense that it's not the primary mode. It's not the primary or most surface thought that's going through the person's head. But I don't want to say subconscious in the same sense of like, you're, you're not aware of it. I think people are aware. So like part of the, part of the frustration that I have with the idea of conscious and subconscious is it's way too Boolean, right? And, and I think in reality, what happens is human brains operate, human minds, not so much the brain, um, human minds operate on multiple concurrent levels on a range from consciousness to subconsciousness uh, all at the same time, right? And those, so, you know, it may not be the upper one or two sort of thread processes in your brain that that is, you know, getting you know, moving from that emotional backwards, right? Um, but it, but it's maybe one or two steps down from it. But 
it's definitely higher than say a, a deep subconscious uh well most of the time it's higher than a than a, what we would generally call a subconscious thread sure sure and i'm definitely presenting it in more of a boolean way because that's simpler but yeah that's also not, <laughs> not real life yeah it is it is a lot simpler um all right so let's uh skip on to the next one so here is and I, it's not really a, a, the next one. It's actually the next like four. Um, so these are four, I think one, two, three, four. Yeah. These are four logical fallacies that I've grouped together because they, they, they overlap a lot. Uh, and we, you can almost think of them as the same thing, even though they do distinctly have their own sort of unique place within the sort of topology here. So the first one is an appeal to common practice. So everybody's doing it. Therefore, it must be true. And the second one is appeal to tradition. We've always done it this way. Therefore, it must be true. Appeal to popular belief, which is the idea of saying, well, L, the majority of people believe this. Therefore, it is true. Right. So democracies have a big problem with appeal to popular belief. I, and I shouldn't say problem. We because we are in. I'm not saying democracies are bad. But by the nature of democracies operating as they do, we tend to inflate the value of popular belief being true. And I mean, I'm also, you know, a free market guy. I'm, I'm, I, I love the notion of the efficient market hypothesis, even though I know it's not actually completely true. But I like the theory of the, emo uh, of the efficient market hypothesis. And therefore, the idea of appeal to popular belief is, you know, pretty well connected to that idea. If you have, you know, a, a, an efficient market, the market is actually evaluating what is true. Therefore, popular belief is the market, therefore is truth, right? And, but that well, ultimately is an appeal to popular belief, right? But in politics and democracies, appeal to popular belief is not claiming that um, popular belief is some objective true. It's just that's what the largest amount want. So that's what we're going to do. That's true. In, politi in politics, that's true, but not in the efficient market hypothesis, right? In the efficient market hypothesis, popular belief becomes true. It will not becomes true. Popular belief in the efficient market hypothesis eventually conforms to what is the truth. Sure. But that, I mean, I think that largely boils down to definitions because... Um, you can't define the true price of something to be other than what a market of people are willing to pay for it. That's <laughs> but, true, right. But when you're talking about some political or religious belief, there probably is um, something that is objectively more true than something else, regardless of how, I mean, different levels of knowability and all of that. But that's like very different than like, what is what is the true price of this holographic Charizard Pokemon card, right? <laughs> right, right. What What is the true price of Bitcoin right now, right? I mean, and that's the thing, right? It, what is the true price of Bitcoin? The efficient market hypothesis says, well, whatever the price is right now is what the true price is. And for all intents and purposes, that is objectively true. Um, but yeah, in right, terms of like... I mean, in a democracy, if 99% of people just want to define murder as not a crime, then, like, for the purposes of that, like, organization, <laughs> that is how it is now defined. But there's probably still some different objective truth that lives outside of how we've decided to organize an organization or um, a political group, right? Right, right, right. 
All right, and then the last one, very much related to appeal to popular belief, which is the bandwagon fallacy. Everyone seems to be doing this thing, this new thing, therefore I want to get on the bandwagon. I want to not be left behind, uh, or we shouldn't be left behind because society seems to be moving in in this direction. That's a a bandwagon uh, uh, fallacy. Yeah. Let's see here. You've already hit the generic examples of all four. So some quizzing examples of this kind of group would be push button versus seats pads or um, how we do 20s for scoring versus two, um, 10 points versus one. Um, if we were inventing quizzing from scratch and had no knowledge of what was done before, it's very well possible that we would decide on different things for both of those. But currently, probably the largest argument um, for each of them is to keep doing what we have been doing and not it's better because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, per se. indeed. Indeed. And of course, we've talked about that numerous times on past episodes. All right. Well, so the next one is a, only one thing, but it's hard to define um, to some degree. So it's called hasty generalization. So a hasty generalization fallacy is a general statement without sufficient evidence to support it. But the problem is how do you define sufficient evidence to support it? Now, if you're, if you're talking about deductive reasoning, so how do you define sufficient evidence, right? So if you're talking about deductive reasoning, that's fairly clear because there's never sufficient evidence unless there's 100% of your posits are you know, covered, then you've got sufficient evidence, right? Um, but that's not so much evidence. It's really more like, are, are your posits themselves backed up, right? Um, in inductive uh, reasoning, it's the, well, you know, how much evidence do you need before you get a high enough probability of of, you know, circling the truth that you say, yep, this is the, this is the truth, right? Cause you're never going to get to 100%. Um, so the idea of saying, well, we're at 95% probability, that's good enough for the purposes of what we're trying to figure out right now. Therefore, we'll consider it true until we are, we, you know, we see something that proves the opposite, right? Or, or until we have, you know, uh, countervailing, uh, evidence or whatnot, right? Um, but that's generally what hasty generalization is right it's um the fallacy exists when there's a rush to get to a conclusion to sort of settle the argument and move on to something else rather than saying well we don't have enough evidence so i think i'm leaning this particular direction but we're not going to get to a full conclusion right um it's typically made when there's some inductive evidence but there's insufficient evidence for a deductive conclusion right so this can lead the arguer to commit a series of things or one or more of these things they can either have and include an illicit assumption they can stereotype they can jump to an unwarranted conclusion, they can make an overstatement, or more commonly, they can provide an exaggeration. Uh, but this is, these things are not all present in all hasty generalizations. Usually if somebody is getting to an exaggeration or an overstatement, that's usually a sign of a hasty generalization, but it may not be, right? So this one's really kind of a lot harder to nail down. Yes. So some examples, generic ones first. You visit a new country and the first person you meet in the airport is rude. So you assume that everyone in the country is rude or you send a message. Oh, yeah. Um, or your grandparents aren't very good at using the computer. So you think that all older people must be computer illiterate. Again, this is kind of like um, 
how we don't do deductive or inductive reasoning to their fullest extent always. Like, it's kind of just an efficiency thing, but that can lead to incorrect conclusions. Um, some quizzing examples would be I was motivated by intense competition, um, and just about all the quizzers that I quiz with were. So, all quizzers are motivated by intense competition. Um, you are speaking about anecdotal data that is probably not representative of the population. It might happen to be, but you for sure don't know that it is. <laughs> um, and then, ooh, this is a good point that you made, is that hasty, general, hasty generalization and selection bias go hand in hand. So coaches are predominantly former quizzers or parents of quizzers. Therefore, sh we should recruit new coaches from those ranks. Um, so, yeah definite selection bias going on there right right and so i mean essentially what happens is it's it's the sort of the b17 that gets shot up over europe and uh, comes back and they're like oh here's where you know the holes are in the airplane so we should put more armor there and somebody uh i forget who the guy was uh statistician looks at that and says no we should do the exact opposite because the planes that didn't come back got hit in the places that were critical right the planes that made it back were able to survive those hits so we should put the armor in the other places and it turns out he was right but that was a, a form of selection bias right yeah and i mean mm -hmm. yeah i don't think i've been to add to that okay well so the next one another collection of for logical fallacies, these ones are not as closely overlapping as the previous set of four, but they do relate to each other uh, decently. The first one is the straw man argument. The second is the ad absurdum or from absurdity uh, argument. The third is the red herring and the fourth is the non sequitur, right? And they're all kind of slightly different. Well, in some cases, more than slightly differences on sort of a theme. So I'll go through each one and then Scott will have some examples. So the first one, the straw man argument, a straw man argument is basically any time where uh, somebody is arguing something and the opposing side decides I'm going to distort what they're arguing and actually argue against that distortion not the things that they're actually arguing for, right? Um, now, this is sometimes done in, t well, a lot of times it's done intentionally. A lot of times it's done unintentionally, right? Uh, if somebody misunderstands either willfully or unwillfully somebody's position or argument and then starts arguing against their misperception of that, that is still technically a straw man. So you can have a you know, an intentional or unintentional willful, willful or unwillful straw man argument. It's basically anytime you're arguing against a distorted position of your opponent, right? Or, and I, I shouldn't say opponent, although that in a classical debate, there is an opponent. I'm really more talking about the opponent in terms of the idea. Like if you're taking the opposite side of a particular idea in a debate, right? So the second one is ad absurdum, ad well, whatever. I can't, I can't say Latin today for some reason. So anyway, from absurdity, taking an argument from absurdity, this is taking potentially a valid argument and arguing against it in an extreme version thereof. So somebody's arguing for one thing, you know, a slight move in a particular direction. And so the response to it is to argue against the extreme version of the small move that's being uh, 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 suggested, right? That's an argument from absurdum. And that's, it usually has to be taken 
way far for it to really get into the point of, of being considered absurd, right? So then the next two that we've got here is a red herring and a non sequitur. These are using an unrelated argument, which may, may be valid, right? To distract from the current argument. So this is sort of the, hey, look, I have this shiny thing over here. Let's argue about this other thing that has nothing to do with the actual thing that we're arguing, right? So a non sequitur is just, is, is a, is a, a sequence of arguments that just does it literally means not follow, right? Something that doesn't follow logically from what you're talking about. A red herring is more the, here's this shiny thing over here. Let's look at that. Right. And so, I mean, since you just finished with it, I'll go with red herring and non sequitur. You often see this when people have a passion for doing something out in the world. Like I want to reduce plastic use or I want to something else. And an often argument against it will be like, well, you aren't doing anything for this obviously much worse problem um, as if, every, you know, and the implication, which they're probably not meaning to imply, is that everyone in the world both agrees on the worst thing and that should be the only thing anyone is trying to help or fix out on. Right. Right. And you can see the the absurdity of it. Now, uh, there probably is a, a not like a red herring like argument that would be useful if someone is spending their entire life on the most trivial small thing <laughs> or, you know, who knows, but um, let's see what else you are going to have to help me out on the generic examples. Which of these go with which? Yeah, I just did these in order. So let's, um, let's start with the first one, which is the, the straw man. So uh, let's say you've got one person who says, I prefer dogs to cats and the second person says, it's wrong of you to hate cats, right? Well, the person A, I mean, this is actually kind of a combination of straw man and, and absurdum, right? Um, the person A wasn't saying that they hate cats. They're saying they prefer a dog, right? Um, and person B is basically setting up the argument that uh, they're, they're arguing against the idea that person A hates cats, but person A never said that, right? Um, it's also taking their argument sort of beyond a particular, you know, per, a particular point. The second example is even more the uh, uh, argument from absurdity. Uh, it, it's the statement of like, our family watches too much TV, therefore we should sell all of our household TVs, right? Well, that's kind of taking, th and I, maybe that's not absurd depending upon your particular situation. I know a lot of families who actually don't have household televisions uh, for a lot of really valid reasons, right? But if the idea is, I think all television, television watching is bad, then selling all of your household TVs is reasonable, right? It's a logical uh, uh, sort of conclusion there, right? It, it's not absurd. But if you're saying my, our family watches too much TV, the solution is not to eliminate all of the TVs. It's to reduce the amount of time watching television, right? Now, you can ultimately get to the idea of saying, well, we have attempted to reduce our television viewing. We can't. It, let's say it's an addiction. When we turn the TV on, we end up sitting there for hours and hours. Therefore, the only solution open to us to achieve a reduction of TV viewing is to eliminate all of our household TVs. Then it's like, okay, fine, that's fair, and that's that's logical, but that requires a middle step between family watches too much TV and we should sell all of the household TVs, right? And then a red herring is, well, and actually this is more of a non sequitur. 
a, a person says airplanes are superior to helicopters. By the way, they are. I have experience. Um, airplanes are superior to helicopters. But person B says coffee is better than tea. Well, it turns out both person A and person B are correct, right? Um, person B is saying something that is objectively true. Coffee is objectively better than tea, but that has absolutely nothing to do with airplanes being superior to helicopters or arguing against that particular uh, position. Right. And to hit some quizzing ones, um, let's say there's an interrogative that's asking for who, and the answer is a proper noun and a modifying clause. And the quizzer went in their 30 seconds only gets out that proper noun. And I have heard challenges saying that the question was answered, right? It's asking for who, and the quizzer provided it. Um, but this is just kind of inventing rulebook language on what constitutes a correct answer um, because there's nothing in the rulebook that says, well, um, as long as the interrogative word was, was, was answered in a minimum state, then the quizzer will be considered correct. No, I mean, the rulebook says it contains the information requested, um, which, so, I mean... People are make that's that's definitely a straw man, right? It's arguing for something completely different. Um, another one is I've heard the argument challenging and protesting are anti-Christian when really that's a a different kind of argument than I don't know, I, I don't even know how to respond to this one because challenging and protesting exist in the rule book. If you think that they are anti-Christian, you should probably try to have them not be explicitly part of quizzing. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which, I mean, which I'm not trying to say that it exists in the rule book, so it is like the epitome of being Christian. <laughs> but it's just, um, it's like a weirdly misdirected argument that you can't really be responded to, which maybe is the point. Um, and then the last one is the high cost of internationals hinder participation. Um, and someone might respond, well, the high cost adds incentives, um, which is definitely a misdirection and not responding to the initial statement. Right. All right. So the next idea up here, or the next fallacy, is an appeal to ignorance. Because we don't know something to be true, it can't be true. Right. Which, okay, because we don't know it. Okay, Okay. right. Okay. Um, some examples, generic ones first. No one has, has ever been able to prove definitively, definitively that extraterrestrials exist, so they must not be real. Or no one has been able to prove definitively that extraterrestrials do not exist, so they must be real. Um, this is the black swan, right? It's, right. You, cannot, uh, there, you cannot observe any amount of white swans and prove that black swans exist. <laughs> um, so this, this one is definitely like taken too far because the more white swans that you observe without observing a black swan, your probability of thinking like, hey, like maybe black swans don't exist, like that probability is going down. But there is never a point where you can say that they definitely do not exist, which is the point of this fallacy, right? Um, quizzing example is you can't objectively prove quizzing systematically improves Christian discipleship, therefore it doesn't. Or you can't prove difficult questions encourage quizzers to memorize better, therefore um, difficult questions discourage um, those are both things that you can't, um, yeah, just because you can't prove it one way does not make the opposite true. Right. Indeed. All right. So the next one is a false dilemma. So this is in a lot of cases, like we were talking about, um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes, uh, in terms of, you know, deductive versus deductive, inductive versus deductive reasoning. Well, one of the, the 
logical fallacies if you're ever going to read um, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stuff. One of the things that Sherlock Holmes actually falls into from time to time, and bonus points if anybody can read the uh, original books and spot when this happens, uh, it's uh, Sherlock Holmes will fall into a case, uh, a, a fallacy of false dilemma. And this line of reasoning fails by limiting the options when there are, in fact, more options to choose from. So, you know, you've heard the 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 famous saying, when all other possibilities have been eliminated, whatever remains, however unlikely, must be true. Well, OK, yes, that is true. That statement is true. But you actually have to eliminate all other possibilities. And oftentimes, in fact, very, very oftentimes, that's a, that ultimately leads to a false dilemma. Now, now, classically, false dilemma usually says it's either A or B, and it ignores the fact that C is a possibility. But false dilemma truly, in, in, in a practical sense, is any number of options that are, in fact, not actually the full set of options. So if you say, well, it can only be A, B, C, or D, and you elim eliminate everything except for B, and then you say, okay, great, well, it must be B. Well, it could also be L and Q and R and Z and so forth. There's all kinds of, usually, there are other options that are not being included in the set that we're limiting from. Right. Um and this is often fairly confidently and aggressively presented um, so as to convince the other person, right, that there's only these limited options. Right. Um, we can select either the, the NIV or the ESV for a material translation um, would be an example. Right. And there are many other translations. Like, if you don't like coffee, you must be a tea drinker. Well, no. It, it could be that the person likes water i mean they could be one of those weirdos i mean who knows right there there are more options to drink than coffee and tea i i can't imagine what those i guess soda pop is one option hot chocolate is an option right so it seems weird to me that there would be people who don't like drinking coffee but apparently they exist and they're not all tea drinkers all right so the next one is a logical fallacy that is in latin and i'm going to butcher it but it, essentially it is two quote Quo see, I did it again. Tu quo qui? Never mind. I'm I'm totally butchering it. Anyway, it. I think I think you're close. I think it's tu quo qui. Quo qui? See, I can't. I still can't even say it. I'm clearly not enough coffee today. So anyway, literally translated, it means you too. And this is an appeal to hypocrisy. So this fallacy is when uh, the, the person is pointing to the opposing side's hypocrisy to distract from their argument. Right. So the classic one, but dad, I know you smoked X, Y, or Z when you were my age. So how can you tell me not to do it? Or a quizzing example, but coach, I know you didn't study hard when you were a quizzer. So how can you tell me to do it? So in those examples, the dad and the coach, if they are presenting like their instruction as an appeal to authority and that alone, that would probably an inc be an incorrect way of going about it, right? But there, but it kind of matters how it's being presented, and it can very well be the case that you are recommending people do something different than what you did, right? Like that—that that seems like it could be a very common thing that happens by more experienced people in any given activity or field. Right. Indeed. Now, in terms of quizzing, this doesn't 
typically become a big problem in quizzing because quizzing is Christian and Christians are the victims. I don't know. That's not really the right word. Uh, Christians often are the target of this kind of logical fallacy a lot, right? So when, uh, you know, Christian typically will, will, uh, make an appeal to holiness, right? Um, so uh, an appeal to say, you know, be holy as Christ our Lord is holy. That is, you know, strive ever to be uh, more holy. And there's all kinds of, you know, doctrinal questions as to, well, is that is that even possible? And by by what means is that possible? And, you know, all kinds of, you know, where how is the spirit involved? And how is sanctification involved and justification? And, well, not so much justification. But anyway, there, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of doctrine and, and theology that, that goes into this idea. But, there is a, you know, a quintessential bedrock idea of Christianity is you, you're trying to be a better person. And, and by you trying, I'm not saying it's all on you or even that it is predominantly on you, but rather the goal is to be progressively, uh, sanctified, right? Like, like to get, and, and again, sorry, I'm using massively overloaded words and depending upon your, you know, doctrinal, uh, camp that you belong in, that word can mean slightly different things. But the idea is that, you know, Christians are always advocating for a, a progression towards holiness, uh, you know, in some degree or another, right? And so, of course, then the Christian is, is responded to by the argument of, say, of, of the, the fallacious argument of saying, but wait a minute, you're saying I should be a better person, but you're a terrible person right now. Like, you sin left and right. And of course, the Christian is like, you're correct. I sin all the time. We should all try to sin less, right? Um, and that's, that's why, you know, in terms of, of quizzing or in terms of Christianity, Christians tend to be, uh, more aware of this than, say, uh, non-Christians, I think. Sure. But in the argument that you presented, like, if the Christian is presenting themselves as a better person, purely because they are a Christian. Yeah. Then I think it can make it e it can make it very easy for someone else to use this in a more correct manner. Yes, absolutely, right? Cuz then they're then they're saying, "Well, wait a minute. Your argument but, but of course at that point the the Christian is not saying be holy because it's the right thing to do. They're saying be holy because I'm doing it, right? Like they're saying like be more like me. Um and of course the the counter argument is to say, but wait a minute, you're not actually holy, right? Like like be holy like me, and the counter is, but you're not actually holy. That's that's a actually not a fallacious argument. It's really more when somebody says, We should be holy, and then somebody says, But you're not, and you're like well, yeah, of course I'm not. I'm saying we, me, in, me included, should be less sinful, right? And and so you know, typically, I would say a healthy Christian is is aware of this argument because they're dealing with it when they're dealing with the secular world, right? And so, like a very a very good way to stave off the um, what is it, two quoque argument, is like I recommend that you do X because I think X is good or right or whatever, not because I did or did not do X myself. Right. That is irrelevant to why I'm telling you, you know. Right. And of course, as you note, you know, this kind of connects back to some of the other, you know, logical arguments, right? Um, the the appeal to authority and ad hunum connect into this two quo way a logical fallacy as well, right? Because, you know, you're, you're, you're going back to who's the source of the argument 
and uh, rather than the argument itself, right? The call to try to sin less um, is is a call, and it's irrelevant who makes that call. We're, we're, we need to be judging or evaluating, like, like, is that the right thing or not the right thing based on the idea itself? Mm-hmm. All right, so the next one is a, a, a series of connected causal fallacies. And there's actually a whole bunch, but I'm really only going to list out two. Um, and they're both in Latin, and so I'm going to butcher them again because I can't say Latin today for some reason. So the first one is the post op. Uh, see, it's so simple and I can't say it. The post hoc ergo proctor hoc. Okay, ooh, awesome. I actually said that correctly. Post hoc ergo proctor hoc. So the, it, it literally translated it means, uh, literally translated it means after this, therefore because of this. And this fallacy happens when you mistake something for the cause just because it came first, right? So there's, let's say there's a series of events, A and then B. And somebody says, well, A came before B, therefore A caused B. And that's a causal fallacy. The second one is um hoc ergo proctor hoc, which is with this, therefore because of this. And so that's when you mistakenly interpret two things found together as being causally related, right? So this can be things like uh, you, you see an A and then you see a B1 and a B2 and you see the B1 and B2 together and you say, okay, well, the B1 and B2 are together there or, or they exist at the same time. Therefore, they must have had a common cause, right? So that, that connects up to that as well. Yep. So an example of post hoc ergo propter hoc is... Yesterday, I walked under a ladder with an open umbrella indoors while spilling salt in front of a black cat. That's why I'm having such a bad day today. Um, And it reminded me of a quote from the TV show The Office where something bad happens and Meredith says, I knew something bad was going to happen today. And the response was, you said that yesterday. And Meredith said, yeah, yesterday my neighbor died. Um, Let's see here. An example of... Is it, I think it's um, um, hawk, ergo, propter, hawk. Griffin drinks coffee when he starts his workday. There's something in coffee that makes Griffin want to work. Well, I mean, that kind of is true, but, um, or maybe not want to, just able to, right? Um, but the fact that those two things happen close to one another, um, it is, it is a jump to assume that they are causal. And a really good quizzing example is too many quizzers are airing at internationals, so we need to make the questions, um, unique or key in fewer syllables, there's probably like four fallacies embedded in that statement. Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, well, the next one, a pretty common one that we hear a lot, uh, is the fallacy of sunk cost. And so this is when past investments into something justify the continuation of the something. So like one example, um, you know, really obviously wrong example is uh, I've driven halfway to the store already. Uh, so even though I just realized that the store is closed, I might as well go the rest of the way there. Now, we would never do that because we were like, well, that's just wasting the second half of things. But we see this sort of example crop up in all sorts of uh, universes or, you know, somebody starts building a house and they're like, well, I've already invested such and such amount of money in in the kitchen. I should just keep investing more rather than cut my losses. 
And I'm I'm pretty passionate about this one in kind of weird ways. So I think what a classic another classic example of a sunk cost is you're out to eat at a fancy dinner and you have eaten 70% of your dinner and are just completely full and you say, "Well, I should finish this because I paid for it." And that is sunk cost, right? Whether or not you finish it is not going to change the amount that you pay. However, there is an aspect of um whether or not it is worth something that I just that economists call utility and it could be worth positive utility to you to know that you finished a hundred percent of your meal even if it makes you feel physically worse um there, there still might be positive utility there and i think people overlook the the mental side of how you look at something having positive utility now when it comes to say that house example or something with very large potential costs on the line um, the mental positive utility from either having finished something or stayed the course or something like that is definitely not going to be worth um, staying the course. A good example from quizzing is we've already invested a lot of money into jump seat technology, so we should keep using jump seat technology. Now, I think in the short term, if you've already paid, if you have equipment that you've already paid for that allows you to do quizzing, well, then any decision to have to pay money to continue to do quizzing, you should probably think carefully about it. Um, but the next time you decide to like, should I buy more jump seat technology? That's like the key point um, to really make that call. Indeed. All right. So the last two that we're going to cover in this episode today are actually kind of the same thing. So one is called the slippery slope fallacy. And that's uh, a fairly classically well understood uh, logical fallacy. We're going to talk about that one, but the amusing thing is because of the fair bit of chatter and discussion around the fallacy of the slippery slope fallacy, uh, it turns out that the slippery slope fallacy is itself a fallacy. And so I'm calling that the slippery slope fallacy fallacy, right? And it turns out that both of them are simultaneously fallacies, which is I, I know it made my brain hurt for a little bit, but then I drank coffee and I was better. So the classic slippery slope fallacy is as follows. If we accept a small change in one direction, so imagine you're you're sitting on a, a continuum, right, at, at some particular point, we'll call it point zero, and let's say we accept a small change in one particular direction, it will be followed by another small change in the same direction sometime later. And eventually, if you, you know, as you start to slide down that particular continuum, the repeated changes will either accelerate or will, because of simply existing, will allow additional changes in that direction to happen going forward, right? So the idea of the classic sl slippery slope fallacy is that, um, I don't want to make this small change in this one direction because some future change will go in that direction further and further and further, eventually to a point where I don't want to see the continuum. Well, the continuum goes there. I don't want to see us at that particular point uh, on the continuum, right? So you can see how this connects up to a lot of some of the other uh, fallacies that we've been talking about, you know, in, in the in the podcast so far, right? So this is a, a fallacy in and of itself. Um, however, there is a fallacy of this fallacy, and you know, I'm calling it the slippery slope fallacy. Fallacy: humans tend to fairly quickly accept small 
changes as the new normal. And this allows us to then be more open to accept small changes around that new particular normal. So therefore, while the slippery slope fallacy is indeed a fallacy, the slippery slope fallacy is itself a fallacy because in fact, movement on the continuum can allow future movement on the continuum that the first movement uh, actually allows to, I'm, I'm saying that doubly, sorry, let me re-say re, re, re that. An initial move along the continuum can often be the thing that allows a further move on the continuum later. That's interesting because I, okay, so let's start with the classic slippery slope fallacy. Um, I think a good example of this is we've discussed why does, why do we need to be limited to two and three word unique phrases being the basis for a question being valid? Like why not four, five, six, seven, eight? And similarly, why does a question need to be unique in the first or contain one of those uniquely defined things in the first five words? Um, and often the response is, well, I don't want a question that might be unique on the 50th word or the 30th word or something. When in reality, you're you're pretty limited when writing questions to stuff that is like clear and not awkward and sounds good and isn't 500 words of content. <laughs> and so even being allowed to um, write a question that's not unique in the first five words, it, it's not like, oh all question writers are just going to try to have nothing be unique in the first five words, you know? So I think that would be an example of the slippery slope fallacy. But you could say, like, what would be an example of the slippery slope fallacy fallacy? Any movement in that direction makes it easier to have additional movements in that direction. Right. I mean, the, on the only... Th but at the end of the day, if people are evaluating a change by itself, then you then you combat this, right? No, like, no. It, it, in fact, actually quite the opposite. It's when you, when you review a change by itself that the slippery slope fallacy is the fallacy, right? So the idea, it's, it's very Overton window stuff, right? So if you, if the Overton window is the zero point on a continuum and you move the Overton window a little bit to, you know, one side of, of the equation of, of the continuum, right? That new position becomes the new normal and then it makes the next move possible or not possible, less resisted. If that makes sense, right? So the idea is like, like, let's say, you know, you're on a continuum and uh, of the Overton window and there's a zero point in the middle, right? So if you want to move things, if you, you can, you have the ability to move them with a little bit resistance, resistance in one direction, but the further you go, try to move them, the higher the resistance you're going to have, right? Uh, and of course, this is all, you know, hyper theoretical, right? But the idea is if you then move a little bit to one side, that becomes the new norm, new normal, give it a very small amount of time, and then you can make the next slight move in that particular direction. Now, this is not saying that that is neither good nor bad. This is not like a moral judgment of, of moving that direction is good or bad. Like looking at the whole of human civilization, the last, like, say, 3000 years, the idea of individual liberty and freedom has, you know, progressively moved in a 
you know, always in a better and better and better position. But where we are right now, if we were to suggest that to somebody, you know, around 300 BC, they would think we are insane, right? Um, if we were to suggest that to somebody in the 1200s, they would have thought we were insane, right? Although maybe less insane than somebody from further back in time, right? Um, but that Overton window has sort of shifted over time. The fact that it did shift very slowly um, over time allowed it to keep shifting. And that's what makes the, the slippery slope fallacy itself a fallacy. I'm not, well, sure. But like, if you're not making a value judgment, then why do we care? Well, sure. But that this is the thing. All of this stuff is not about value judgments, right? We're not talking about, you know, the fallacy of sunk cost as a, as a value judgment, right? We're talking about it as a logical fallacy. And the slippery slope fallacy is saying, uh, you know, if, just because something moves in one direction does not mean it's going to continue to move in that direction. And the slippery slope fallacy fallacy says just because something moved in a direction makes it easier for it to move in that particular direction in the future. That doesn't mean it's going to, right? And so that's why I'm saying both the slippery slope fallacy and the slippery slope fallacy fallacy are both fallacies. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, and on that bombshell, we've gone a little bit over time. Um, so why don't we close here? We definitely would love to hear from everybody. Uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org and you can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing and you can chat with us in near real time on the Bible Quizzing Slack forum in Inside Dash uh, Quizzing. And uh, let's see, our next episode is going to be episode 99. Uh, we'll have that ready in the next few days. And then Scott and I are going to be recording episode 100 at Internationals in uh, Toledo, Ohio. Uh, it'll be a week and a half, I don't know, somewhere between a week and a half and two weeks from now. Uh, so that will be extremely exciting. So if you happen to be at Internationals, uh, we would love to see you in a live studio audience for some very clever definition of studio because it won't be a studio. It'll just be a room with a microphone. But anyway, there is that. All right. And with that, I will say thank you all. And thank you, Scott. Now, before we close, do, do we have any sort of a kind of a sum up or takeaway from this logical fallacies episode? Is it just really to try to bring more awareness to potential logical fallacies so that the entire realm of quizzing keeps its course some more towards um, the strength of ideas and not um, the goodness or badness of people. Yeah, I think, I mean, maybe um, I, I mean, we've, 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 we've looking through a lot of these fallacies. I think we've seen a fair number of them exist in quizzing over the years and, you know, I think that's just normal. I don't think it's unique to quizzing. I think it's 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 more unique to humans being humans, not anything about quizzing that's quizzing that causes us to fall into these logical fallacies. I think it's really more we just need to be aware of them. Uh, it's hard to be self-aware of them, but if we're all cognizant of them to some degree, we can help hold each other accountable to logical, rational thinking when it comes to how things operate within quizzing. I think that that's a great sum up. So thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks, Griffin. 